So we're here again recording another episode of the podcast series on Weimar in Nazi Germany and we're up again early in the morning uh, to bring you this new episode on extreme right-wing threats uh, within the Weimar government. So Steve, what sort of things are we going to be looking at today then? Uh, good morning. Um, this morning we're going to be focusing on um, the very first right-wing threat to uh, the new Weimar Republic, which is the Cat Putsch. Um, early in 1920 and then we're going to move on from there to look at Hitler's first attempt to seize power with the Munich Putsch in 1923. Okay so I'm going to start by giving a kind of background to these extreme right threats and um, particularly with a focus on the ideology because the ide ideology was quite distinct from the extreme far left uh, the communists who when discussing a previous podcast the Spartacist Uprising concerned trying to input a um, communist government within uh, Weimar Germany. Uh, they, they were really disparate, weren't they, the far right, compared to the far left. There was a kind of variety of reasons that brought uh, the far right together. There was no one common aim or uh, common ideology. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of thing, Steve, was behind this ideology? Well, it's true what you say, Chris. The, the, the distinction between the two rival groups is this idea, well, ideology, the far right um, was a loose collection of ideas, almost an umbrella term that included things such as um, the idea of anti-democracy. They blamed um, Germany's current problems on this new form of democratic government. Um, they were definitely fervent anti-Marxists. They saw Marxism as a real threat mm -hmm. to traditional values, to private ownership of property and to wealth. And I guess they kind of saw that as the greater threat. The, the Weimar government and there was sort of more sympathy for uh, the nationalists on the on, on the far right. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, moving on from there, they, they strongly believed in this idea of an authoritarian government. Um, basically, they wanted the return of a dicto dictatorial regime similar to what occurred under the Kaiser. Mm. Nationalism, was all, nationalism was also um, at the core of the extreme right. Um, Germany's pride had been extremely hurt by the events of 1918-1919 with the signing of the armistice and the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and all of this was reinforced by the stab in the back myth and the idea of the mm. November criminals. So, yes, nationalism, was, nationalism certainly was at the, uh, the core of this movement. So it's kind of you've got a mixture, as you say, of anti-democratic principles, anti-Marxist principles, clear authoritarianism, and then the nationalism is kind of tagged on. And I guess someone that kind of supported a particular party or a particular individual on the far right could be a mixture, an amalgamation of those four different four different points couldn't they absolutely and you know it, it's fair to say you know probably with the exception of, of the working class that um you would get people from all other classes in germany which would um subscribe to these extreme right-wing beliefs mm. whether that be the the landed aristocracy um the military um the middle class who were were fearful of uh, you know the rise of communism they were just kind of used to conservatism weren't they and i guess you get that strand within the far right yeah so I, I think you know conservatism was hardwired into the dna of of german people if, if i like to say that i think um, so, born out of this ideology, then, is we've got a group called the Freikorps. Now, they're going to be pretty central when we talk about the first putsch, uh, the Cat Putsch in 1920. So, it's probably important to give a bit of a background about this uh, this band of, well, what some historians have termed thugs, 
uh, and whether that's an adjustment or not. But uh, yeah, so essentially they're a band of ex-soldiers that were part of the post-war climate. Um, and you get kind of about 200 paramilitary squads, sort of kind of the war has ended, they're, they're returning home, but they've, they've, they've still got that energy, that zest to do something with their power, uh, having been in the army. And uh, they kind of roam the streets, don't they? Yeah, I think the, the crucial thing to remember about the Freikorps is the fact that, you know, Germany wasn't defeated militari- militarily mm, on, on the battlefield. Um, Germany wasn't invaded by the, the Allied powers. So um, when the armistice was signed, the armies just simply packed up and, you know, returned home, complete with weapons. Um, so you have this large band of armed professional soldiers um, back in Germany, um, fed by this um, stab in the back myth. Um, very, very bitter at being, you know, so-called betrayed by the politicians, and um, they are a central element to the early politics of the Weimar Republic. And they certainly didn't have any faith, as you say, in the, in, in the Weimar government. But that plays a really important role when we look at how the Freikorps uh, acted within 1919-1920. Um, so yeah, these paramilitary squads were relied on by the government to put down the far left. We talked last time. Uh, an episode or two ago about the use of the Fry Corps in the Spartacist uprising and they kind of needed them in order to put down that revolt it kind of ties in with the Ebert-Groner agreement the idea that uh, the Weimar government didn't have an army in it and of itself but it relied on the army to do its bidding and um, they obviously used the Fry Corps or allowed the Fry Corps to um, beat down the communists it was uh, Freikorps members that kind of grabbed Liebknecht and Luxembourg. So, yeah, they were quite central, weren't they, to the um, Spartacist uprising? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, um, the German army at the time stood on the fence and didn't come to the defence of of the Republic. And, you know, Herbert was forced to, to rely on these essentially legal paramilitaries. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I think you're quite key there where you say Ebert is forced to rely on these paramilitaries because there isn't a clear choice, is there? He's kind of got one arm tied behind his back and they're a ready-made force and he uses them or he allows them to be used against the Spartacists. Yeah, absolutely. So this then has a lead into the cat putsch of 1920. Steve, do you want to just kind of introduce what this putsch is all about what, what, who's behind it and yeah um, well, the leading, there were two leading figures we've got um, Wolfgang um, Kapp who is a leader of a right wing German fatherland party he's very much a monarchist um, he plays a minor role in politics during the um, you know during the First World War um, and we've also got um, General Lutwitz um, and basically, we've got a situation in 1920 where there's considerable unease within the Freikorps at demands to reduce the size of the German army under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. And although the Freikorps are demobilized soldiers, they have got this close affinity with their, their colleagues who are still within the army, um, and they see it as a, you know, a, a threat to Germany to basically leave it. Defenseless. Because they were reduced to 100,000 men in the Treaty of Versailles, weren't they? So I guess the first sort of people they kind of go, yeah, we'll, we'll need to get rid of them is the Freikorps, because they're you know, just paramilitary squads. Yeah. So I guess with them feeling redundant, that's where it comes to mm. bite the Weimar government in the backside. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I, I think they they feel vulnerable themselves. Um, 
Um, and I think by this time, maybe Herbert realises that, yes, the fry core were useful um, at dealing with the threat from the left, but they also pose a threat themselves. So um, maybe they felt that their days were number two. And that's, I guess, where Wolfgang Kapp comes in, exploiting the situation, uh, encouraging them to march on the capital and seize the organs of power. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was, you know, the seizure of the main government buildings did go ahead Mm -hmm. unopposed. Um, Significantly, the German army didn't perform its duty. It didn't go to the defence of the Republic. I think that's really important, isn't it? The Mm. the idea that uh, that Ebert-Groner agreement that had been signed earlier, the idea that uh, Ebert would leave the army alone if they came in and defended the Republic in a time of crisis, the fact that they didn't interfere, I I think, is really crucial. You know, there's there's little faith in the Weimar Republic standing on its two feet from the side of the army and the army not willing to attack. There's a great quote um, said by General von Secht who said, troops do not fire on troops, which kind of sums up completely the, the, the concept that um, they're not willing to defend the Republic. Yeah. They don't want to fire on their own. No, exactly. So this uh, leads Ebert and the Weimar government effectively to be without a body to put down such an uprising. So it's in stark contrast, isn't it, with the with the Spartacists? They've got no one to put down this uh, uprising. So the effect essentially is that the SPD leaders flee. Yeah, yeah. off to Stuttgart they go, um, and it, it's rather ironic that we're now in a situation where you know Herbert and his government have to rely on the far left now, so you know the the workers to actually try and keep them in power. And this is where we get the strike, isn't it? Yeah. The idea that as they leave, they, they call for a national strike and the workers down their tools. Uh, quite a genius idea because it actually does work. Uh, six days, isn't it, that they're uh, left paralysed in the central powers of government in Weimar yeah. before... Uh, yeah, and, it, you know, th- this sort of strike sort of quickly spreads um, throughout the rest of the country. So it it, it is very effective very quickly and like I said within four to six days it becomes clear to Cap that you know he can't govern um, his government the government that exists um, exerts no real authority and mm. ultimately the, the, the putsch collapse, collapses and he's he's forced to flee and it's very similar to a torching policy isn't it the idea that when you've got an invading army you torch the uh, countryside, you torch the farm so they can't use it. And effectively, that's what he's done with a general strike, yeah. is he's abandoned it and um, Cap finds it very hard to run the central organs of power. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it helps the fact that Cap wasn't particularly a, a dynamic leader. No, the, the no. whole putsch wasn't particularly well um, orchestrated at all. Um, I think, like you said before, he was just taking... Um, advantage of circumstances and hoping and praying that it would be successful. So looking at the conclusions of this uh, putsch, uh, a basic overview could seem to show it as a success. Ebert eventually comes back to power, he's not deposed, uh, there isn't a more authoritarian government in place, but I think that's an oversimplification. If I was writing an essay or arguing a point, I would say that actually it's a limited success. Absolutely. Um, you, you, know, you could argue the fact that yes, he does retain the support of the, you know, vast majority of working class people um, but really what's significant is the fact that this thing has taken place at all it, yeah, clearly, that's, that's it clearly highlights some major fundamental weaknesses in the Weimar Republic certainly underlines the um, you know the unreliability of the army 
which remained right-wing in its beliefs. Yeah. Um, and it breaks that whole Ebert-Groner agreement. This shows that it's dead in the water. Absolutely. The idea that the army is going to actually come and defend, no matter who it is, communists, far-right, yeah. uh, pseudo-anarchists, whatever. The, the army is not coming to the aid of the, uh, mm. of the government. Yeah, but, and I think what makes it worse is that once the, the putsch is over, um, instead of Herbert purging the army, mm. um, actually Sheck restructures the army um, still based on right-wing principles, really, and the army essentially becomes a state within a state. Um, mm. So further undermining democracy, I think. I guess if we were being a little bit sympathetic, we could say that Ebert, he had no choice, really, but to reward the uh, army and also to reward sect, because he became uh, chief of army command right up until 1926. You could present the argument that, actually, uh, he had no choice to reward because he kind of needed them on side. He'd already lost their support. Um, so it's like a weak, ineffectual leader trying to claim, salvage some form of link with the army. Yeah, you you could argue that. Um, I think it's more down to the fact that Herbert realised he had to be pragmatic in yeah, order for, yeah. you know, the, the, the sort of green shoots of democracy to, to survive, to be totally honest. I think, um, yeah, I think pragmatism was... was um, the order of the day, really. And it kind of permeates just a little bit more into society because I, uh, I read that um, when the putsch, the, the people involved in the putsch were uh, arrested and put on trial, only one of the 705 was actually sentenced, which says to me it's not just the army that's riddled with conservatism and support for um, the people involved in the putsch, but also the judges, the court system. Yeah, uh, it extends much further than just simply. It's more under the surface, isn't there? Yeah, I think the whole civil service, um, you know, um, is underpinned by this right-wing ideology, um, and certainly, the, you know, the judiciary definitely supports um, the extreme right. If you just look at the um, number of political assassinations that took place um, during this period. Uh, I think there were a total of 354 right-wing assassinations, of which only 28 um, yeah, were found, found guilty. None were executed. Um, Left-wing assassinations, there were 22. Ten were sentenced to death. So those figures sort of speak for themselves. So let's move forward a little of the pace and let's look at 1923, because this is the second uh, key far-right uprising, isn't it, with the Munich Putsch yeah. happening somewhere different. It's not within the capital, within uh, Berlin, uh, challenging challenging um, the Weimar government. In fact, it's in the southeast of Germany when we look at Munich. Absolutely. Um, you know, this attempt to seize power, again, it's taking um, advantage of current political situation. We've just had... Um, the French invasion of the Ruhr, um, and we've just had the um, hyperinflation crisis. So um, popularity for the Weimar Republic is probably at an all-time low at this point. Yeah, and the man behind the Munich Putsch, as uh, many people know, is Adolf Hitler. He sees it as an opportunity to seize and take power. I mean, Mussolini in 1922 has already done his uh, march on Rome, hasn't he? So he's, he's given him credence to say, look, you become a nationalist leader, you can take on a nationalist government. Yeah, I certainly think that um, Mussolini's march on Rome was a big influence on, on Hitler. It made him realise that if, if you're daring enough, 
mm. um, then you can potentially seize power using you know using armed revolution. But the key difference is, is that Mussolini's putsch actually didn't fail, <laughs> whereas Hitler's did. Yeah. And a lot of that, as we'll probably explain in a moment, is to do with um, preparation, lack of support. So, so Steve, give us a bit of a background. What actually happened during the Munich Putsch? Um, well, basically, if I can just introduce the, the, the plotters to, to start with, um, we've got um, four main individuals involved in this plot. We've got Gustav von Kahr, who's the ultra-conservative leader of the Bavarian state government. Um, he basically wants to destroy the Weimar Republic, similar to Adolf Hitler, but what he wants to do is establish an independent um, state of Bavaria. Um, and in support, he's got General Otto von Losso, who's the army commander in Bavaria. Um, and these two individuals team up with Hitler and the Nazis. Um, Hitler wants to take it a step further, and he wants to use um, this as a sort of springboard to mm -hmm. um, to march on Berlin. And he uses um, General Erich von Ludendorff, um, who also took part in the Cat Putsch, um, as a as a front man. He was a decorated World War One hero, and he thought that if we've got a man of Ludendorff's caliber um, alongside us, then lots of people will support this idea. Yeah, it shows that you've got the support of the army and that actually it's not just a lone voice in the wilderness trying to obtain power or a lunatic. He's actually got the backing of the army, which would then have the soldiers on side, which would then have uh, the families. And it just extends from there, doesn't it? Absolutely. And like I said, they're, they're taking advantage of, of the chaos um, that occurs as a result of the the invasion of the Ruhr and the, and the hyperinvasion crisis. And as I said before, pop, you know the popularity of the, of the Weimar Republic was an all time low at this point. Um, the um, the coup starts, or the attempted coup, I should say, starts um, the first week of November, nineteen twenty three. Um, initially, like I said, Carr and Lasso with um, the aid of Hitler and his um, 50,000 stormtroopers um, planned to seize um, power in Bavaria but at the beginning of November um, cracks start to appear in, in, in this sort of coalition of, um, of conspirators really Karl and Lasso fear that it's going to fail and they abandon the plan um, and Hitler's left hanging shall we say Hitler not so cautious as the other two and with like I said 50,000 stormtroopers um, raring to go um, he decides that he's going to take action he storms a rally that Carr is addressing in a beer hall um, in Munich hence the name of the, the putsch um, and he forces Carr and Lasso at gunpoint to proceed with the uprising um, crucially um, he then lets them go at which point they um, inform the authorities in particular General von Sket um, of what's happening um, because there's a great scene isn't there if, if, if anyone out there has seen the film Rise of Evil with Robert Carlyle it's a great scene where Ludendorff lets them go because they want to phone their wives absolutely and uh, yeah and, and Hitler's raging and ranting it is, it is rather a comical to, to say the least but ultimately, the following day, um, when the Nazis do attempt to seize um, Munich, um, the Bavarian state police are there waiting for them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the putsch is easily put down. 14 Nazis are, are killed, um, and Hitler is arrested um, a couple of days later. So it really is a failure for Hitler. If you take the point where he is shot in the shoulder, as some accounts give, falls down, flees, it's a failure. Absolutely. But actually, what is important isn't the Munich putsch, 
We know that's a failure in itself. It's what happens after the Munich Putsch. That's really what is crucial to, to, to argue, because actually it changes the dynamics within Germany. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I think, again, in, in the film um, The Rise for Evil, when Hitler is in prison, initially he's in a rather depressed state, isn't he? He's all about giving up politics, but um, he seems to um, come through this um, and he changes his um, approach about how he's going to seize power. He realises that using force is not the way that he's going to succeed. He needs, there's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't got it written down, but it is better to win at the ballot box than to use bullets and guns or to shoot our way um, out. And yeah, that's that's part of it, is that change of departure um, to say, look, now we need to kind of go through the voting process. Revolutions, putches don't work. It just creates more problems in the long run. And we kind of see that, and I don't want to diverge too much in this podcast, but we see that with the Bamberg Conference in 1926, where he's trying to unite the Nazis in the path of his, which is to go down the route of elections. Um, and also what is quite important is how he's not executed. Yeah. Because he has, in theory, and in practice, committed high treason. Yeah. It goes to the, back to the point we made earlier on about the fact that the, the judiciary was um, extremely conservative or right-wing in its beliefs, and um, you know they supported Hitler's ideas. I think the judge, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, had um, been involved in a trial that Hitler uh, had um, right. been in earlier on for, for some lesser offence, um, I think. Um, but what's important about the trial is, um, from, from the Nazis' point of view, is it gives them... Um, Exposure to exactly, the, nas- yeah. the national media because up until this point, you know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis are a small, insignificant um, Bavarian political party, not heard of outside of the state of Bavaria. But the way that Hitler actually takes over the trial um, and turns it into almost a, a political rally, I suppose, um, exposes him um, to to the wider uh, German population mm. because the trial is you know extensively covered within the German press so you know it's very clever of Hitler to to use that opportunity and i think what tends to get ignored when we're talking about the munich putsch is actually you get a similar uprising called red bavaria don't you yeah uh, in 1923 so that one tends to get Overlooked, and this one gets the focus. And I guess that might have been going through the judges' mi- uh, minds at the time the idea that actually, still in 1923, the greater threat is communism, not someone like Hitler. Yeah, I mean, it, if, I, sorry, I was going to say, if, if you look at the, the period 1919 through to 1923. We tend to focus on the Spartacus uprising and the Cat Putsch and the, and, and the Munich Putsch, but there are lots of other um, outbreaks yeah. of um, right-wing and, to a great extent, left-wing um, revolutions in different towns and cities throughout Germany. So I agree, Chris. I think yeah. from the point of view of the you know the conservative right, um, the middle class, the landed aristocracy, um, the greater threat is still the potential uh, right. And I guess the problem with that is because we're looking from a historian's perspective. We know where Hitler goes on to. Yeah, so we focus on the Munich Putsch and say this is a really important, which it is. Mm. But what I'm saying is, and hopefully making clear, is that um, in the minds of the judges at the time, 
communism was more of the greater fear rather than the, the nationalist uprisings. So probably in their mind would be to crack down on things like Red Bavaria, which yeah. do get cracked down on, um, rather than the Munich Putsch. And that's probably why he goes from high treason to nine months commuted yeah. in prison. Yeah, I certainly think Hitler and the Nazis are the lesser of two evils from that From, that from, from the, the contemporary perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're going to conclude now. Um, we've been discussing today, just to recap there, uh, the far extreme right uprisings. We've looked at the uh, background to the ideology, how that played a role in the mentality of those uh, involved within the uprisings. And we've looked at two distinct uprisings. One, the Cat Putsch of 1920, and then the follow-up through Hitler, the Munich Putsch of 1923. Catch us again, hopefully we'll be a bit more awake, uh, for the next podcast. Thank you for listening. Cheers, Ed.